Uh, my name is Deanna Van Buren, and I'm the co-founder and executive director of Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. And we're a nonprofit uh, architecture and real estate development firm building the infrastructure to end mass incarceration. And then we're an abolitionist organization. So we're imagining all the alternatives and, and all of the places and spaces that need to be built uh, to address the root causes of that problem. Tell us what restorative justice means to you. Yeah, that's um, kind of how the organization started, inspired by restorative justice. And so our, our understanding of restorative justice is that it's a philosophy, uh, a reignited indigenous philosophy globally, right? Communities all over the world that said, when a harm has been done in the community, it is about a breach of relationship, right? And that those relationships need to be repaired. We, 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 for many, many millennia, could not afford to expel people from our community. We had to work with them. And so uh, it says that the needs of the person that have been harmed have to be addressed and that the person who committed the harm within the community to people or persons have an obligation to repair that and to make amends. They are accountable. And so it's several set of practices and processes that bring those parties together to address the harm that's done and potentially create a plan to address the conduct and repair that breach of relationship, uh, which makes 100% sense to me. <laughs> and uh, we are hoping to build an infrastructure to support that as a cultural practice, a shift, a way of how we address harm. Uh, incarceration doesn't work, but restorative justice appears to work uh, and has worked for a long time. So. We need to bring it back in full. One of the reasons I thought your work was so powerful when I saw you talk at the conference is because you're talking about this kind of philosophical idea, uh, this ethos, uh, but you're actually applying it in, you know, literally in bricks and mortar and other materials, I guess. Um, so you talk about transforming the spaces and the places where we do justice. Can you tell us a little bit about what those spaces are usually like where you work and then how you're redesigning them? Well, I think people have to understand that we build stuff all the time that represent certain people's beliefs and values. Right? So if we build a prison or a courthouse, which we see those all over the world. I find ironically that the courthouse tends to look the same in sub-Saharan Africa, as it does in the U.S., right? It has this very colonial, and that was what was exported, those beliefs and values, and we built those. And so we're not just, you know, in a way, we're not like just transforming spaces of production. It's like we're making new building typologies, new kinds of things that are about a different kind of justice, like rethinking what justice is, right? Justice is what love looks like in public, to quote Cornell West. What does that look like? What is that, right? It, it's new stuff. Like it's stuff we don't have. Um, when I was looking at spaces for restorative justice, right? Has, I was like, has anyone built a restorative justice center? Right? Forget courthouses. Like we don't need courthouses. Courthouses are about a different kind of systemic value and idea. Um, I couldn't find any. Like nobody had built restorative justice centers as a way of anchoring and fomenting that practice as we have done with other forms of justice. I found indigenous building types. I found the Faranui in New Zealand and uh, Hogan's in North America. Um, you know, I was looking at the Constitutional Courts building in South Africa that 
you know, was coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Court. So I was like looking at, I actually started by looking at global examples, but just found very few because we hadn't been building for that. What we're building for was for punishment, for control. You know, what we're building for was for an elite idea about how uh, punishment should be meted out and dealt with when harm has been done. And so, you know, some of the spaces that we're starting to create are are hyper-local, right? There's spaces or buildings that support peacemaking. So they're on neutral territory. They feel different. They're integrated with nature. There's lots of natural light. There's a kitchen because we can break bread together. Wow, justice is about breaking bread together. There's cool-off spaces, uh, high levels of visibility and security and trauma-informed principles in the space using biophilic design. I mean, I could give a whole lecture, like all the components of what uh, spaces that support our well-being need to look like. Um, and we don't, we didn't build that, you know, we built prisons, we built jails. There's nothing soft or fuzzy about a courthouse. You know, there's nothing, <laughs> you don't, you don't get excited. You don't take the family down to the courthouse for the day. You don't want to hang out there, right? That's a place you don't want to go. Uh, so, um, what do we need to build instead of that is the question. And then how do we build it together so that people who, uh, have been ignored in the building of the world around us are participating in its creation. So it's not just what you create, it's the process by which you get there. So talk us through an example of that. That I think the co-production of it is so key there, isn't it, as, as to where it is and what it is. One of the first projects we did was the Syracuse Peacemaking Center in Syracuse, New York. So this is upstate New York. And what it was bringing was Native American peacemaking practices into a non-Native community for the first time in the United States. So instead of sending people to court for quality of life crimes, like you stole my car, you took my purse they would go into a Native American peacemaking process that would be facilitated by elders in the community. Really beautiful, old process, bringing that in. But you have to imagine it's a community that's never used restorative justice before peacemaking. So uh, also, what does a peacemaking center even look like? I had never been to one. What is that? You know, what is that? Um, And so what I did was I created a process called the Peacemaking Palette, where I brought community members together. I got trained as a circle keeper, so I at least knew what I was doing, right? I had to train myself. And I guided them through a process that replicated a peacemaking process, but was really also about design. So I was like, oh, you know, we're passing the talking stick and they're sharing an image of color that makes them feel at peace or at home. And then we did role play, you know, using diagramming, which architects love to do, right? We're like moving bubbles around and, oh, this should go here. Well, what if we had a garden? We'll put it over here. So everyone role played as a different party in the conflict. And then they designed the ideal environment they would want to go to have that conversation. And I was able to take that information and understand, okay, this is what I'm hearing. Everybody's saying this or People need these kinds of spaces and then work with the community to figure out where, okay, well, now that we kind of know what needs to be in it and what it might need to look and feel like, where does it go? And that was a process too, to sort of talk with folks about where uh, a place or a site in the neighborhood where everyone felt safe going to would be. Um, And in the end, we were able to take a house, old house that was a drug house near a school, in neutral territory, according to the community, and turn that into a peacekeeping center. And it's been very successful. 
uh, in creating community cohesion because peace, not just peacemaking happens there, but because the community was engaged and we got the site right, they're using it for tons of other things. The school was uh, sending students over there. Uh, the, the most difficult conflicts the school has are being diverted rather than expelling and, you know, suspending people. They're going into peacemaking across the street. Kids were just coming by to hang out. The community was having uh, engagement parties there and uh, baby showers. And it was a became a kind of hop for them. And that's can happen, right? What, what does justice look like? It actually looks us communicating with each other, talking to one another, being together, building a different kind of safety that has nothing to do with incarceration. You spoke in your talk about Detroit maybe becoming the first U.S. city of restorative justice. Tell us about that. Well, I'm hoping Oakland will be too, right? So, but yes, this is the vision. This is something we've been working on a long time or thinking about, I would say. You know, I I, I think that there are some cities who are being a little more progressive and getting that way of doing justice deeply into it. There's a lot of backlash to it, right? A lot of folks who don't believe in it and don't want to do it and don't think it's relevant. It's something very unfamiliar to them. But in Detroit, we have a project uh, we're calling the Grand at 14th Campus, which will be a creative oasis for social justice and have many things. But one piece it will have is a restorative justice center in it. And so working with restorative justice practitioners across the city of Detroit, understanding that they're trying to really implement this very deeply and they need a place by which a neutral territory again, right, that nobody owns because people, not all restorative justice programs and practitioners agree right on the way to do it and all the things, but they need a place where they can go do trainings like our restorative justice space here in Oakland, right? Where people can begin to practice and learn how to do it. And it's dedicated to that, uh, that way of being. So I'm hoping Detroit will keep going with that. I'm hoping Oakland, we have a new district attorney who, you know, do have to sort of, it's the grassroots and the top, top roots coming together to make this happen. Uh, will begin to implement that and we will be able to make more spaces and places that support that, knowing that we know exactly what they need and kind of how to get to where they need to be. And that has to be part of the process. So I'm interested in your thoughts on designing for survivors as a kind of broad concept, because what you've just said there, it seems so specific to the community and the needs of the community and the culture and the history and I wonder if there are any rules that work across all design jobs for survivors or whether it's always going to be so different. Yeah we, we have several buckets of work and one of them is uh, designing spaces for survivors and and when the spaces for survivors work is in particular is looking at in cases of severe violence. So the Peacemaking Center was really more about lower levels of conflict and harm we're very interested in, in moving towards like what happens in spaces of severe uh, um, violence. And I, and I think you're right that the qualities are not that not so different. You know, I think some of the things that sustained across a lot of and these are we're talking like interior spaces, right? Interior environments. We, we also need to look at much larger um, uh, structures around that beyond the building. Right. But when we just say let's just looking at the environment inside. What we're hearing is, you know, people need to see themselves in the space. So the artwork that's integrated into the project is really important. That 
elements of nature need to be in the project. And, and there's a whole range of ways to do that. And working with the community to figure out what works, you know, what speaks to them, and particularly the art and the sort of natural aesthetics is critical. People need to know where they're going, right? There needs to be no confusion about where my space is, where I'm supposed to go and follow. So we call it wayfinding. It needs to be very, very clear. People need to have visibility. Like I need to be able to see where I'm going. It's very traumatizing if there's solid doors and I don't know where that door goes. And I can't see the door, right? My back's to the door. There's a lot of those pieces. People need control over the environment. They need to move my chair, turn on the light, change the temperature. All of that helps people. You need objects of comfort, both visually and physically, whether that be pillows or things to touch, right? It's a somatic, right? How does the environment support our ability to regulate our nervous systems through what we see and touch and feel? Very, very important. The operations of the facility, critical, right? Who's greeting you? What do you, you know, is there hospitality? Would you like some tea and coffee? There's always a kitchen, right? You always have to provide hospitality for people. So those, there's like a whole mix of things that we're trying to uh, quantify and create a toolkit for so that people really understand these are the components of creating trauma-informed spaces, regardless of whether it's violence, you know, regardless, like people who are coming really traumatized backgrounds. All of us carry trauma, but many of the folks we're working with are really dealing with, you know, a lot more to metabolize than some others. And they deserve the best quality environments to support that, as opposed to what happens now where they have the worst quality environments to, to do something that's so deeply emotional and intense. I mean, can you even imagine? So how do we do that? And yeah, so far we're, successful in getting some built and, and are working on getting some more built. Finally, I just want to ask you about um, kind of cross-sectoral working, because it strikes me that what you're doing is working on projects that involve all sorts of different kinds of people who traditionally haven't worked together. And I'm really interested in, in mental health working in that kind of cross-disciplinary way, because it obviously is so much more than just about psychology and psychiatry and nursing what do you think needs to change for people to connect up better in the mental health space and be aware of the importance of that kind of working well there's some people thinking about it but I, I think that there needs to be an awareness of it there needs to be intentional conversations about the intersectionality of these things I think we need pilot projects where we're working together to implement those ideas you know you have to kind of try stuff out uh, cross-disciplinary work is messy and we need to learn each other's languages and what we're talking about. You know, uh, my first work was done with a social scientist and she and I, it took us a while to get to understand each other. But when we did, what we were able to do was pretty fantastic because we were integrated our different ways of thinking and approaches to actually do something that was very holistic. So there's a commitment to, uh, uh, being comfortable with the uncomfortable, because now you may not, you might be in a situation, I'm not the expert on this. I have to actually humble myself and learn some things, but you also have to share what you know. And it takes a little time and you have to get familiar with that and comfortable with all of that messy stuff. And uh, out of that will come great things, but we have to, we have to be intentional about it and be aware about it and, and find projects that we can practice on. Mm -hmm.